0: Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. Scripture, what God says. Paul has given a description in verses 1 through 9 of the last days. Remember that kind of that character look at what, the, what people would be like. And not a pretty picture, but yet it's a picture that as we look at it in our world, it's like, wow, well, there it is. Yep, that's exactly the way things are here in these last days. Now Paul's going to pick up. Here and continue, and he's going to tell us uh, before we end this chapter exactly how it is we can stand in these last days with the increasing uh, false teachers and people that would come in to try and destroy the church. We'll begin reading verse first of all in verses 10 through 12, where we read that the godly will suffer persecution. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, perseverance. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he's calling Timothy to follow him, to continue to follow him. But he's not going to paint a picture that's not real. The picture that he's painting out is one of of difficulty and hardship and even, even persecution. But I want to just draw your attention first of all to say, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. So his teaching, you've heard what I've said. But then he goes in to talk about, you know, the way he lived, not just what he said about life, but he followed how he lived his life. So you have carefully followed my doctrine, my purpose, my manner of life. My love, my perseverance, all of these things, Lord, that the Lord put on my heart. Timothy, you have followed them. You are duplicating my life. You know, in Paul's day, I think more certainly more so than in the Western world today, there was a sense of of like tribe, and I don't mean tribal, like divisive, but I just mean tribe of we belong to this group of people. This is our family. This is, this is how we think. This is how we act. This is how we function. Whereas in the West, there's this sense of independence. And, um, you know, I, I'm an individual going to chart my course that some may read this and think, well, that's a shame. No original thought as to how to live his life. Well, I think that probably is an, a wrong way to think of it. Timothy had his own gifts. Timothy had uh, purposes that God had placed in his own life, and he followed them and he carried them out. However, at the same time, there was a pattern in front of him that he followed and that he embraced, and it did not make him less Timothy. And I think there is such a, a, a temptation in our day and age where people will be like, I want to do it my own way. I don't want other people to tell me how to do it. You did it that way. I'm going to go find my own way. And yes, find your giftedness, and yes, walk out you know how God has made you, but that does not mean that you wad up that which is in front of you, your parents, your grandparents, godly men and women around you, and say, I'm just going to go do it my own way. I think that's foolishness. And you're going to cause yourself a lot of hurt and pain and unnecessary difficulty. We are blessed with people around us who've walked out the faith. Those that have been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years, I don't know. What a blessing that is. That is a that is a heritage and a treasure that is in our midst to be able to say, how did you do it? Because have you noticed there's a lot of people that aren't following Jesus beyond a year? There are a lot of people that don't follow Jesus after that difficulty and after that pressure. And then there's like, they, they walk away. But to have people around us who are following the Lord and are pressing on that is a blessing for us to have and to look and say we got to see something new something fast something slick and to miss out on the perseverance of that brother or sister and not to try and draw everything you can out from them boy we are missing out so, yeah, there is a place for us to follow that call of God upon our own life. There's a place to use our giftedness and the uniqueness of how God has created us. We're not trying to be all, you know, cookie cutter, you know, followers of Jesus. But nor are we trying to go chart the course all by ourselves And not glean from and learn from. And so, uh, for Timothy, he carefully followed the Apostle Paul's doctrine, his teaching. But not just his teaching, other stuff as well, his life. And this is such an important point for us to see. We don't want to follow just what people have to say. We should never get to the place where we accept the idea that we divorce what people say from the way in which they conduct themselves. And and this is, again, I think a special challenge in the day in which we live because there's access to so much media and so much doctrine and so much teaching and you can just take it all in without ever once interacting with that person or having an idea of what kind of husband or wife he or she is, or what kind of child or what kind of parent or what kind of you know, neighbor. And so all of these things, Timothy was able to see this. There's a personal relationship here, of course. But the idea that we would just listen to what anybody has to say that's out there just because it sounds good, I think it's, it's, it's troubling to me. Because we are meant to be a community of people. We're meant to be a family that is connected together. Following and modeling how to live out this Christian faith. So for Timothy, he had the blessing of having that person up close and personal. Could hear what he said, but also watch how he lived. And he said, yeah, I'm going to pattern myself after him. And Paul just says, listen, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. And so... We have to just stand back and, as a country, just say, "Wow, how different and how blessed our experience has been!" That we do not have people banging down the doors, dragging us off to prisons and jails, and burning up, you know, and taking our stuff away, burning our stuff down, you know, boycotting our businesses. We there, we see little samples of that here and there, but not like it has been historically the case down through the ages of the church, nor the way it is in many places. And and so I I believe for another study that there's a special special responsibility we have to, to whom much is given, much is required. What does the Lord want us to do with this unique blessing that he has placed before us? And this freedom that we have, and we use it for the proclamation of the gospel, hands down, that is what we do. We run and we take the gospel out. We use the freedom we have, the resources we have to spread the gospel and to send people out and to support those that have gone out that are in situations where they don't have what we have. And I believe this is a responsibility. And I personally believe, just if you're writing notes, Troy's own personal take, when the church in America fails to live up to that, watch out when we fail to take that privilege of freedom and use it for the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God, then why do we have this unique, wonderful gift? So that's just my own personal take. You can ponder it, disagree with it, but at least think on it. So we read there in verse 13, uh, the evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he gave us a picture of what the last days will be like. It doesn't look pretty. Then he says, this is how, what I want you to do. I want you to, to stand fast, continue to endure afflictions. That's what's going to happen. And then he comes back and he says, now it's going to get worse. Things are going to get worse. They are not going to get better and better. And he says the purpose is that they can, they're, they're uh, deceiving others and they are deceived. And so, impostors threaten the health of the church. Men and women who claim to be part of the body of Christ will come in increasing numbers with the goal, with the objective, to deceive people regarding the truth. The very doctrine that Timothy carefully followed. They're going to come in, they're going to try and twist it. And these people come in as Deceivers. They don't come in with this, you know, a, you know, a dark, you know, hat and cape and, you know, sinister voice and say, I'm here to ruin your life and the, you know, church ministry that you've, you know, you've established. No, they don't do that. They come in to deceive. And so they, they creep in. We're going to read in just a moment about how they worm their way into the church. And they find that place, and then they begin to pull people and disciples aside to their doctrine and to their teaching. He says, this is going to happen. It's going to get worse and worse. I'd like to talk to you about just four quick things, and it could be four other things. But I just want to talk to you about four quick things that I see that have been a a threat to the church in, in recent years. And the first one of uh, threat that I see is this idea that all religions are the same. The world is happy to, to espouse this. It's all the same. It's called religious relativism. Now, this is espoused. You have to understand the people that espouse religious relativism, that all religions are the same, don't believe in a religion. They don't believe in it. They are materialists. They are those who say, you know, there is no God um, I only believe in what I can see. I, I believe in evolution. I believe in, you know, we live and we die and that's it. And there's nothing outside. These are the ones that push re- religious relativism because they have nothing invested in it. You're not going to find a person who's a Hindu or a Muslim or, or a Christian. And I'm not saying they're, they're equal. It's making the other point. But you find those that have faith in religion. They don't believe in religious relativism. They believe what they're holding on to is the right thing. And they know that there are other belief systems out there that have a different view. And they defend their position vigorously, as we should. And we're going to see that we're exhorted to do that. But this idea that they try to push is that, hey, you know, just be at peace. That We all need to get along. And it's this idea that there is no spiritual um, absolute. And you'll see how these next two points are related to this point as well. So religious relativism. All religions are the same. No, they're not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He speaks of being exclusive and that Christianity is different than all the rest. They are not the same. So when those come along and they say, just accept everybody. It's the idea of, of, I don't know, all the reasons behind um, this bumper sticker. Um, but the coexist bumper sticker where you see all the different symbols of religions coming together. I imagine for some it's like, hey, let's not fight anymore. Yeah, but, but that does, I agree with you, let's not fight, let's not have wars over religion. But the idea that they're all the same and they're on an even uh, playing field, that, that is not what we believe. Here's what we believe. Those are doctrines of demons that are meant to deceive people and keep them from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They are not the same. And so religious relativism is one that you can feel the pressure come upon you. And the pressure is like, well, don't be mean. Don't be a hater. Don't be so narrow minded. And you will feel that pressure of religious relativism in that way. The second one is that tolerance is the greatest virtue. And don't think of tolerance in the way you will find it defined in a traditional dictionary. Um, It's very different. And and what motivates this idea of tolerance, and it is the greatest of the virtues among those who subscribe to this. It is better than honesty. It is to surpass loyalty and trustworthy. And that's how you can find so many people so quick to lie and be dishonest about what they believe. Like, how can you just lie like that? Oh, because the goal is tolerance. And tolerance trumps every other virtue. And so for for the sake of tolerance, as we'll see it defined, I'm willing to throw everything else out. Don't think of tolerance in the sense of, hey, you have a different perspective than me. I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. We've tried to work this out. But you know what? Um, I respect that you have a different opinion and I'm not going to do you harm, but I have a different one. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. That is not tolerance as it threatens the church today. It's a totally different kind of uh, understanding. As As tolerance is defined today... It um, demands that we not only put up with, but even embrace, listen, embrace and celebrate the views and practices of others. I'm reading to you from Vodi Bachman's book, Everlasting Truth, Everloving Truth, sorry. Furthermore, the new tolerance demands that we value the views and practices of others to the degree that we value our own. And I'll say, even if you have to abandon your view to celebrate the view of another person. That's tolerance. What does this new tolerance do? It's asking you to give up your faith and to celebrate what other people believe. Now, it may not even touch religion, so it's a little different than religious relativism, but you can see how one feeds the other, right? And, And so this is the idea, is abandon your faith, abandon what you believe, abandon your scriptures and your truth because you have to celebrate and affirm and even maybe promote what I believe. That's tolerance. Not the idea of, well, you have a different view than I do, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree and get along with our different views. That's not what they mean by tolerance. It means to abandon what you believe. It means to take the exclusive claims of Christ and water them down and say, well, it doesn't really mean that. Well, what does it mean? Well, you can make it mean whatever you want. You just can't let it mean that. And so this is another threat, tolerance. The third threat as the idea of postmodernism that says there are no absolute truths. There are no absolutes. And um, this is kind of what is espoused by the postmodern thought. It does not have any uh, hope in, in human re- reason. It has this idea of, you know, your truth is yours, my truth is mine, and that's okay. Well, what if your truth conflicts with my truth? Well, you know, I don't know. I don't want to worry about that. And so it's the idea... That they, um, you, nobody can claim, again, you can see how this ties into re, uh, religious relativism. You have no right to claim a belief. Because if you claim that belief as being an absolute, well, that's not right because there are no absolute truths. Of which those who subscribe to this are what? Absolutely certain that what they believe is true. I mean, you, you, there's no way around that. You, if you're going to th- well, I just believe. Well, then it, it's a belief that there's no absolute truth. Well, do, are you absolutely certain that there's no absolute truth? Yes, I am. Okay, that's kind of confusing to me. But this is postmodernism. The fourth threat, um, and again, I just to, to, to give credit where credit's due, the book by Vodi Bachman, Ever um, Loving Truth. I highly recommend you read it. If you want to know more about this, I think he does a great job of writing on these subjects. It's a great book to go through with your kids or just as a discussion. I mean, it's at the top of my list of books I like to recommend. But a fourth threat, which I don't think he really gets into in in this book, but it's one that I just see is the idea of esteeming sentimentality over the centrality of God's word. My emotions and my feelings trump the word of God. How a person feels is the preeminent concern. How I feel about you and maybe what the Word of God has to say about you is going to govern whether I change my view of the Word of God. See, if, if the Word of God says what you're doing is sinful and wrong and that you living that way would take you out of fellowship and a relationship with God and would separate you and you would have to endure punishment for your sins in the lake of fire. If my emotions can't handle that kind of judgment coming upon somebody that's rejected Jesus, I just simply allow my sentiments, my emotions, to trump the centrality of God's word. And it's very dangerous because now I have put myself, the people who do this, whether they know it or not, and if maybe it's you, I, I'm certain this applies to somebody in here. Probably a lot of somebodies. And and the idea is that well, I just believe that a loving God would not do that. Yeah, but what does the Word of God say? What does it reveal to us? Well, I know what it says, but I just can't see how a loving God would do. do, do, do. And we go on with our our statement. Okay, so now your sentiments, your feelings have been elevated above the Word of God, and. Whether you know it or not, you've stuck a finger in the face of God and said, You're not fair, and you're not kind, and you're not loving. No, 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 that's not what I'm doing. I just, I can't see how God would ever judge this person. They're such a good person. Again, you're saying that you know better than the Word of God. What does God's Word say? You know what it says in the book of Revelation when in the last days when God's pouring out his judgment upon this world? Heaven will look down, we will look down, and we will say, True and righteous are your what? Judgments, O oh God. Heaven will look at the time in which the world is in the, the, the worst days the world has ever seen. God's judgment upon this world, and heaven will look and say, True and righteous. They're not going to say, hmm, I don't know about that, Lord. And I realize this can be a real struggle because of the way it's touching and impacting your personal life. And because of the way you're being peppered with, if you don't agree with me, if you don't tolerate me, if you don't love me, then then forget it. We're not going to have a relationship. And now we see all of these different views beginning to converge together. And we feel pressed into the corner, and you're made out to be like somebody who does not is not loving and kind, and you must embrace what they believe. Well, what, what what about what I believe? Oh, that doesn't matter, because what you believe is from the Word of God, and you know you can't really trust that. And so we see how these things are working their way. So in the last days, uh, evil men, imposters, will grow worse and worse. It's going to get worse than it is right now. And the idea is that we would stand, that Timothy would stand. So these are four things that I see are, are, are a threat to the church religious relativism, new tolerance, right? The, the new view of tolerance, or no absolutes, postmodernism, and esteeming sentimentality over the centrality of God's word. Be careful. Verse 14 and 15 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures. And what can those holy scriptures do? Make you wise for salvation through faith, in, which is in Christ Jesus. Faith in Jesus brings salvation. This is what the scriptures teach us. The primary... The primary uh, instruction from the word of God is that man is lost and God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save him, that there might be a restored relationship. It's a story of redemption. And scriptures teach us this. That's how we know what we know of the Lord, right? And so he's saying that there's this command to continue in the truth. Again, you see the same point that I made um, just in the beginning And the things which you've learned and been assured of. Things, you know, continue in them. You've learned them. You've heard them. Now, continue. The word of God brought you to salvation. Continue in the scriptures. It made you wise for salvation. The reality and warning of scripture is that people will seek to move us away from our righteous resolve to follow Christ there is warfare what does it say in Ephesians um, uh, chapter 6 where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God it says that you might be able to stand in the what day evil day put this on that you might be able to stand in the evil day you guys know what day that is right You know the evil day is coming, right? So I'm sure it's on your iPhone or whatever. You can look it up and just type in, you know, in your calendar, evil day. No, you don't know what the evil day is or when it's coming. Well, then how do I know when to get suited up? Ah, that's the idea. You do it every day. Because we all know that not every day is just like the other day. We all have had days where the phone rings, the text comes in, It's like, this is different today. The things that are happening, the things that are going on in the family, the things that I'm hearing. And it's like, it is just, it's an onslaught. And it's at that time, it's on that, in that day, you need to be suited up. And so we need to be ready to continue in the truth and to not be moved away. And, you know, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to remove the key teachings of the Christian faith. And lead believers into compromise while thinking the whole time that they're fine with the Lord. That's the ultimate goal that he has for those inside the church. And so this comes through attacks against doctrines of our faith and temptations to sin for the individual. Maybe you could even argue for the church to accept certain sins. But we must defend the faith so that the next generation can walk in it. Is that a biblical idea? What I just said, we must defend the faith so that the next generation can walk in it. It totally is a biblical idea. Jude, and this is from the New Living Translation, verses three and four says, Dear friends, I I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time To his holy people. You are his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Newsflash those who say that you can live in particular sins and be okay with God, that is not a new idea. That's been around forever. We just see it being manifested in new ways. But we must defend the faith. The word there in verse 3, urging you to defend, or in the New King James, I believe it would read, earnestly contend, is the uh, Greek word epipo- epa. Uh, what is it? Epi- <laughs> yeah, that word. <laughs> Epigonizomai. And it is to put forth intense effort. Now we all know what it's like to put intense effort into something, right? Maybe it's a project or it's a hobby. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's gaming. You might want to change that one, but uh, you know you, you got intense effort in something, and and you know school or politics. Well, we are told, we are commanded right here that we are to have intense effort, exert intense effort for the defense of the faith that's been entrusted to us. You know, you can look back on the generation that went before us and you can evaluate them. But the one thing you have to say is they did hand us the baton of the faith. They gave us the scriptures. They gave us faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in our hands. So whatever good things they did, whatever bad things they did, they did that important thing. They handed us the word of God and said, follow it, believe it, trust it. And that is our responsibility now, is to defend the faith and to pass this on to the next generation. That when, you know, 30, 40 years from now, when, you know the next group is coming along, that there'll be something that they can embrace and they can hold on to that says, this faith is the right faith. It is the truth. It is the way, the truth, and the life. There's not salvation any other way. This is what gives us wisdom to be saved. And so we must put forth that intense effort. What are you putting intense effort into? It's something. It's, you're, you're, you're all in on something. But what about the defense of the faith that's been entrusted? Think about that. When you entrust somebody with something, you're saying something about their character. You're also saying something about what you've handed to them. The Lord has handed to us his faith. Who did he hand it to? His holy people that have salvation, that know the value of it. And so how do we contend for the faith? You could write a lot of things down, but here are the things I want you just to... To write down. Number one, you contend for the faith. You earnestly contend by knowing the scriptures. You got to know them. I'm not much of a reader. Get over it. I can't read. Listen to it on audiobook. Know the scriptures. You gotta, you, th- these are the words of life. Um, we're to be workmen, rightly dividing the word of God. Secondly, we need to teach and disciple the church. And as I've already mentioned, the next generation. We should be passing on what has been passed on to us, to other people. Who are you discipling? Who are you teaching? Who are you instructing? Who are you urging on in the faith? All of us should be doing that. We should be engaged in the life of the church. How do we contend for the faith? Well, you know the scriptures. You teach and disciple the church and the next generation. And you engage in the life of the church. I believe this is important because we we are to serve there. We declare its worthiness, the worthiness of the church. We support the church. We declare its value. We attend it. We declare its priority in our life. The church, and I know you know it, it's essential for the Christian faith. It is essential for the next generation to have something to walk in. This is our responsibility. I don't have a lot of responsibilities outside of this. This, I have my family, and I have this responsibility. This is what I have to do. There's a lot of things I can do, but this is what I have to do. But you know, the same is true for you. There's a lot of things you can do, but this is what you have to do. You have to earnestly contend for the faith. The Lord has placed it on your shoulders, like it or not, you may not like the way that yoke feels on you right now. That may be intimidating. That might feel like you've got to change a lot of things. Good, change them. But it's on you, and it's on me, and it's on us with that which has been entrusted to us. So contend for the faith. Know the Scriptures. Teach the Scriptures. Engage in the life of the church because this is where those things are going to happen. This is where you're going to learn the Scriptures. This is where you're going to pass the Scriptures on. So you can, you can know the scriptures, and you can teach and disciple, but if you're not engaged in the life of the church, man, you're missing out on the primary place where the, we will contend. The holy people do this. That is the church. Now in verse 16, and we're not going to get very much further than this next phrase, but uh, we'll go ahead and read till the end, just so we have it before us. But verse 16 and 17. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we're really not going to get off this first phrase, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and we'll pick up the study next week. The word inspiration literally means God breathed. Theonoustia. Theo being God, Nustia being breath air. It's God breathed. This is the breath of God. Well, what, what does that even mean? Well, Geisler and Nix, um, in their book, and it's a great book, Thick book, if you like them, uh, General Introduction to the Bible. It is so encouraging. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an academic read, but I think it's totally accessible for anybody. And it just builds your faith around the reliability of the word of God and the beauty and the wonder of it. But this is what they say, very simply, the sacred scriptures are all expressive of the mind of God. Scripture, what God says. You want to know what God thinks? You want to know what he believes? You know what he expects from you? then read the scriptures, open the scriptures, and hear what they have to say. And you will know the heart and the mind of God. Imagine there was this massive earthquake. And first of all, context, let's say that there's no communication from heaven to earth. We all know that God's out there, but we don't know what he's like. We don't really understand him. And let's say there's a massive earthquake and the front of this building just splits wide open. And this bright shafts of light just come out of here. It's just like that is a unnatural, that is a supernatural uh, light and glory. And and you come in and you see this book there on an altar. And as you look at it, you realize this is a message from heaven about who God is and what he is like. And how he redeems mankind. How we are to live. How we are to love those who love us. And how to love our in Every area of life. What to do with our money. What to do with our kids. What to do as we're dying. I mean, it just talks about all of life. And now you have this communication. A divine communication from heaven to earth. What do you think the line would look like to get in the building? I mean, you know somebody thinks they see, you know, the face of Mary in spaghetti. And all of a sudden, people are flying around the world to go look at, you know, this, you know, appearing of Mary or, you know, Jesus is on this on side of the wall and there's some kind of mold or whatever. And it's like, wow, look at the face of Jesus. People will spend thousands of dollars and they'll go and they will worship there. And yet, you know, look what we have. We have this. We have the word of God. It's what God says. It is expressive of the mind of God. It is the will of God. It is God breathed. That's what we mean when we say inspiration. Because we think of oh, I was so inspired by that song. No, 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 no. Scratch that. God gave us scriptures. The scriptures are inspired. The authors were not inspired. The authors we read in Peter were moved along or carried along by the Spirit of God as they wrote the inspired scriptures. Big difference. You know, I was inspired to write this song. Okay, that's, that's great. Thank you. We appreciate that really good song you wrote. But it's a totally different game. Because this is, inspiration is the expressive mind of God, the will of God. And we believe that this inspiration, this expressive mind of God follow this, extends to not just the concepts and the thoughts of the scriptures, but to the actual words of scripture. Individual words, having meaning and significance, inspired. or It is the inspiration of God. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, you get down to like a, a word. You're saying a, a single word, Troy, is, is that's inspired too? Absolutely. We believe in what is called the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. That is all scripture is inspired. And isn't that what we just read? All scripture is inspired. The words of scripture are inspired. Jesus believed the Old Testament was inspired. He wrote or spoke in Matthew 518, for surely I say to you till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He believed that it was the word of the Lord. You can read in places like Luke 3, 4, John 1, how he quotes from scripture, esteeming it as the word and the mind of God. But you can see the value of a single word, the importance of it. Is it possible that a doctrine and even the identity of who Christ is could hinge upon a single word or even the tense of a single word? Could, I mean, could a single word and the, even the tense of a word hold that much power in our doctrine? The answer is yes. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees. He's going to state what we're about to read and then they're going to want to stone him because they made himself to be equal with God. He said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Present tense. In the Greek, it's egoimi. This takes us back to the Old Testament when Moses was speaking with the Lord and he said, Tell me, who should I say has sent me? And the Lord says, Tell him that I am has sent you. God sent Moses. And so when Jesus claims here and says, I am, he was taking on that name that uh, was given to Moses. Therefore, they picked up stones to stone him. I suggest to you that if he would have used a future tense and said, I will be, eh, who cares? Don't know much about I will be. How about I was? Don't know much about I was. But I am? Oh, we know about that present tense. And that is going to cost you your life. And they picked up stones to stone them. A single word in the present tense, all kinds of theology hangs on it. Another example is Galatians 3.16. Inspiration extends to a singular or plural noun. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So the, the, the promises here are, are connected with singular or plural. Of course, there are not many seeds, right? There's one savior. If it's seeds, then there's many messiahs. So you can see that this idea that is put forth as well, you know, we don't believe in like every single word is inspired. I mean, we just believe in the concepts of love and God and redemption and, and you know, grace. That's what we believe, you know, because this book and, and they, they'll make their arguments. No, it applies to the very words, which ought to cause us to approach the scriptures with a sense of awe and wonder. And it's like, Lord, why this? Why here? What is it that you're wanting to communicate others would say well well okay but when it relates to historical matters the inspiration stopped really is theology is salvation tied to history at all we're about to celebrate the birth of jesus that's a historical uh, statement that he was born in bethlehem and that he died the death of a crucifixion. This is what history tells us. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Those are matters of history. So, yes, even when it attends to the historical matters, you cannot separate our doctrine and the faith of Jesus Christ, even his death, burial, and resurrection, apart from history. So, when we read here in um, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, what's the first word? All. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is expressive of the mind and the heart of the Lord. So we take it seriously. We study it in such an important way. No one can deny the greatness of the Bible. It is so unique in the way that it has been written. It was written over 1,600 years, 60 generations, by more than 40 authors on three different continents, in different circumstances and palaces, from prisons to palaces, in different times, different moods. You think about, though, you know, lamentations, or you can think about the Psalms and how they could be such different moods. In three different languages, dealing with every controversial subject you could ever want to talk about. And yet they speak with one united voice. Try and do that at your next family gathering. Pick a controversial issue and just take the 10 of you that are gathered around your table and say, all right, let's see if we can have a unified thought on whatever. Pick your subject. No. You can't. So we have something that is so unique. It is a single message. So for For us, I want us to understand this as we wrap it up. The Word of God, and you've heard me say this many, many times, and I'm going to keep saying it because I believe it's so important. The Word of God is inspired. We just talked about that. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed. It is expressive of the mind of God. What does God say? What does God think? What does He want us to believe? You've got it on your laps. You have Scripture. It is inspired. Well, if Scripture is inspired... Then the logical conclusion about the value of the Word of God is that it is or the quality of the word, not value, the quality of the word is that it is inerrant. It is without error, because it's been inspired by God. So what God gave to those writers is without error. And it is sufficient. That is, it gives us everything we need to know on how to live our lives. You don't have to listen to Oprah to figure out how to live your life. I hope you know that already. You don't have to go out there and read all the blogs. You don't have to go and figure out, you know, wiki how on how to, you know, deal with, you know, depression. You can come to the scriptures. And it will speak to you about how to live life. It's sufficient. Ask yourself this Question. If I was picked up and dropped somewhere else other than the country I live in 500 years ago, would this still be enough for me? And, and then I think you begin to look at it, it was like, what am I clinging to to figure out how to live life? Because the scriptures are sufficient for you. They're sufficient for me. Now listen, most evangelicals will have no problem with anything I just said. Inspiration, absolutely, they'll fight you over it. Inerrancy, yeah, they'll they'll wrestle you over it. Sufficiency, they'll believe that. They may be not as excited, but they'll agree with that. But this is where Bible-believing churches tend to find the problem, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture is this. This is what I mean by it. It has the power and the right to tell me how to live my life. It is not just sufficient in telling me what is the best way to live. It has the authority to now compel me to live that way. And this is where our bibliology breaks down. This is where it all begins to be like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I want to, I, 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 yeah, I know what's right, but... And then we begin to give all of the other reasons. But the word of God is inspired, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. And you know what? I hope you want that authority in your life. I want it. I want God to speak to me. And if I get thick-headed, I want God to just whack me upside the head and bring me to my senses... So that I will continue to submit to the authority of it. Because the last thing I want to do, this is a common prayer in my life. Lord, please don't ever let me deceive myself into thinking I'm okay when I'm not. Lord, I don't want to fool myself. So Lord, I give you opportunity to do or say whatever you need to do or say in my life so that I continue to walk and I follow you. Inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency, authority. So... As we, and we're going to come back. We'll finish this up um, next week. And the thing I want to do next week at the end of our study is I also want to talk about how to study the Bible. So that's going to be a part of our study. So if this thing is this amazing and wonderful, and it is, then how do we actually study it? I want to give you a super, super simple way to approach the scriptures, to read them, and um, be something that you can you can begin to put in practice here at the end of the year and moving into next year. But isn't it? wonderful what we have, the expressed mind, will, the thoughts of God. If if, if you didn't have it on your lap and all of a sudden you knew that it appeared and you had full belief that what appeared was exactly the same kind of belief you have about what's on your lap right now, imagine what you would do to find out what's in it. You would turn that thing over. You would read it. You would study it. And you know, Hopefully we've not become so familiar with it that we treat it as a contemptible thing. You don't have to read the Bible. You are privileged, I am privileged, to be able to read the scriptures and to have them so accessible to us. And we must realize that imposters are going to grow worse and worse. So what's the, how does it flow here? Hey, Timothy, imposters, they're going to get worse and worse. But you have salvation that's come from the scriptures. But you've got you to hold on to those scriptures. The scriptures are how you're going to deal with these false um, men and women that creep in, worm their way into the church, and try and pull you away. I hope you are resolved to be steadfast in your faith. Then nothing will ever, ever move you off of that mark. And if you feel religious relativism or or tolerance speech or whatever, postmodern thought, sentimentality beginning to nudge you off your spot, stiffen your resolve. You're not going to understand everything. There will be questions that you have. But, you know, you have enough answers to firmly and completely commit yourself to living this out. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We love it. One of the reasons why we gathered here this morning was to hear it, Lord, because we believe it is beautiful. It is wonderful. It is exactly what we need. So, Lord, we prayed at the beginning and we pray now, correct us, instruct us, Lord. If there is a brother or sister that's filling their position, kind of moving beneath their feet, Lord, we ask that you would give them the resolve, that they would earnestly contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the church, to your holy people. Lord, that you would entrust us with something so precious. I pray you would humble us right at this moment, that we would be amazed that you've put it in our hands And that we are the proclaimers of this truth. We are the ones who earnestly contend for what is spoken. And Lord, help us, enable us to do a good job with it.